Well, as we turn to our message this morning, I want to invite you to think of yourself as a reporter, a journalist in our story this morning. And you've been assigned that coveted front page slot. Your story will run as the headline of the next edition of your paper. You've been dispatched to Jerusalem to an event called Passover. It's a humongous celebration, as you discover right away, drawing all kinds of people from all kinds of places. Now this topic of Passover is somewhat elusive. There's so many ways to write about it, yet struggling and wanting to know just where to begin, that's another challenge of any writer. So you're thinking, and you're watching, and you're walking. And the city of Jerusalem is jam-packed with people. They're elbow to elbow, and you're working your way through the city streets, the narrow streets of Jerusalem. It's the day of the preparation of Passover. Going along, you stumble upon a rowdy crowd. A man with eyes dazed and stunned bumps into you, practically sprinting in the opposite direction, if not for the crowds. You look down and see his wrists red and raw from handcuffs. The crowd is shouting at a Roman official, Slavlo, Slavlo. You're opening up your Aramaic dictionary to understand what's going on. But that official up front, he catches your eye. He's washing his hands in a bowl of water. And he holds them up, declaring in his own language, I am innocent of this man's blood. And with that, his soldiers whisk away a man, a prisoner, bloodied and somewhat crude-looking. You discover that Slavlo means crucify. Your Passover story will need to wait. Well, this morning in our text, we encounter the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The account you write, the account you report, it could be rated G, it could be rated TVMA, it all depends upon what details you want to include. In many ways, this story this morning is like taking a tour of a torturer's dungeon while in use. But in other ways, people will come away from this event and write of it in the most glorious of terms. The rest of the New Testament praises this event and writes of it with the greatest affection. Open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. Today, with next Sunday, we walk through 30 verses detailing the death of Jesus. Your task is to observe this event and to consider its implications for your life, for sure. But like any good reporter, consider your audience. After all, each of us in this room, we have an audience. We have ears in which we can speak to. How do we communicate what we experience in this text? What do we share about it? Why does this even matter? 
while you peer into the governor's residence, that man who has washed his hands, and you follow this condemned prisoner. He's a man accused of being king. Matthew chapter 27, let's begin in verse 26. It's the mocking of the king. The mocking of the king. Then Pilate released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. In our account last week, we learned of a condemned man set free and an innocent man declared guilty. Jewish leaders brought Jesus to the Roman governor, to Pilate, They brought him for execution. Quite unexpectedly, Jesus was found to be innocent, at least by Pilate. And these Jewish leaders yet leveraged their influence and riled up the crowd to call for his condemnation. Sadly, Pilate obliged that cry. He set Barabbas, the insurrectionist, free. He's the man who bumped into you on your way in. He condemned Jesus as a blameless man to death. Jesus died a a horrific death. He died a death by crucifixion. But with crucifixion, death is not the goal. Prolonged torture is the goal with crucifixion. You see, crucifixion answers two questions. First, how long can we keep a man barely alive in total anguish? And how can we keep or how can we perfect a a slow death with maximum pain? A Roman writer named Cicero came before the time of Jesus. He wrote of crucifixion, quote, It's a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He said it's a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains, an enormity to flog one, sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It's impossible to find a word for such an abomination. In fact, it was so detestable in the time that Roman society, polite society, would not speak of it. Cicero continues, Let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. We see in verse 26 that the Roman crucifixion began with a scourging. Some of your Bibles read flogging. It's a beating with a whip. A Jewish law was known to limit scourging to 40 lashes, but Rome had no such limit. The victim would be stripped naked and tied to a post, and a short whip called a flagrum. It consisted of a wooden handle with thin leather strips wrapped together or twisted together. And at the end of those strips would be pieces of bone or or metal balls or, or even glass. And the Roman soldier would strike his victim with full force. At times, there were two of these soldiers alternating the strikes. 
And as the flogging went on, the, the body would be opened up. And for the medical aspects of our account this week, I'm going to use a study produced by, by two Mayo Clinic doctors and a pastor. It was published back in 1986, but I still think it's one of the best studies done on, on the medical side of crucifixion. Writing of the scourging quote, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. The pain and blood loss generally set the stage for shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. There are accounts of the scourging itself killing the man, these men going too far in their scourging. We know it weakened our Lord. It certainly accelerated his death. In our account, we see the next step here was a mocking. These soldiers mocked Jesus, and, and this was normal for them. They often treated their victims this way. In verse 27, they're called the soldiers of the governor. Um, these were not Romans of Roman blood, but they would have been non-Jews from surrounding regions employed and put to work for the Roman army. Uh, you can imagine the level of mocking for some of the enemies of the Jewish people. Just consider for a moment if a Samaritan or Samaritans had been pressed into service here. They would have been all too delighted to mock a Jewish king. Verse 27 also alludes to the size of this Roman group or this cohort, it's called. At full strength, it's 600 soldiers. We're not sure if that's how many were there? A smaller division could be 120 or 200. The point is that the more gawkers, the more humiliating this experience. And to degrade Jesus, they put a scarlet robe on him. That's a word for a, a military cloak. Perhaps one of the, the red capes laying around from a Roman soldier at the garrison. That crown of thorns would, would have increased the, the humiliation and, and for certain the pain. And they knelt down before Jesus and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And if that medical journal that I'm following is correct, they believe Jesus at this point is in a, a pre-shock state, writing that his condition is at least serious and possibly critical. And if that's true, verse 31 is all the more agonizing the great pain of removing that scarlet robe from his wounds, no doubt a very rough handling of Jesus, dressing him up again and putting his clothes back on. These soldiers have prepared Jesus for his final journey. Witnessing all this, a reporter might conclude that this man received the scorn of men. You see, part of the goal here is not only to bring about torture or eventually death, but to remove all dignity, to, to sap all self-respect from Jesus. Any worth, any personal value, the depravity of this way of killing, they, 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 they want all of that. This is like taking a wet washcloth and just squeezing it out until there's nothing left. That's their intent is to wear these men down. They want to strip Jesus of all self-esteem. You see, crucifixion wants more than just a corpse. It's just satanic. And you must know this morning, believer, that the world hates Christians. Active, practicing Christians. 
Christians whose faith has a heartbeat and has two legs and has a voice. A Christian who obeys God and a Christian who makes waves for the glory of God. This happens in the public square of our day. The world seeks to to humiliate and to shame Christians who are vocal about their faith. They want to intimidate your witness into silence. Don't let them. You see, part of our obedience, part of our faithfulness, it's to receive scorn in the name of God. It's part of what it means to be a believer, at least in some way, on some level. Let's follow our, our journey here of our Lord. We'd be following along, following the march. It's believed that, that four Roman soldiers were tasked to that crucifixion squad. Uh, over in John 19, there's a, a description of the division of the clothes of Jesus. It's divided among the soldiers, the, the squad, and there were four divisions made. For sure, other soldiers marched along. They would have had to, to keep order and, and clear a path as they made their way out these busy streets. And that brings us to our, our second point this morning. We saw the mocking of the king. We, we now witness the parade of the king. It's in verse 32. It's the parade of the king. I'm going to begin in verse 31. They led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon. And they pressed into service to bear his cross. This is Matthew's account of the crucifixion. We're familiar with other Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John. They also record aspects of the life of Jesus, each with a unique intent and unique purpose. But Mark and Luke weigh in on on this part of the crucifixion, and they give us some more. Mark notes that this man named Simon, he was the father of two sons named Alexander and Rufus. That means that that Mark's audience would have known who these people were, Uh, members of the early church. It's led many to wonder about any um, conversion that might have happened uh, with Simon as he bore this cross or thereafter. The Gospel of Luke describes other participants, others along on this march. There's a loud or a large crowd of people. We could imagine it's Passover time in Jerusalem. There's women mourning and lamenting Jesus. And there's two criminals also being led away. And as you watch this procession, it makes its way out of the city, having to work its way through a city gate. The city's walled in, so you only get in and out through gates. No doubt fighting for for space and room, soldiers clearing people out of the way. There's crowds everywhere. Others trying to get in the gate, the, the march trying to get out the gate, trying to get outside the city to the place of crucifixion. Maybe it's stalled for a minute. And then this man, Simon of Cyrene, is trying to come in from the country to get into the city. And a Roman soldier grabs him and he throws the cross on his back. He's not asking him, he's telling him, Rome doesn't ask. And this cross that Jesus carried, now Simon, would have been only that, that horizontal piece of the cross, the cross beam. It's called the, the, the stipe. It's somewhere between 70 and 125 pounds. It's a solid piece of wood. The vertical portion is called the, the patabulum, and that, that was at 
the, at Calvary that stood on the hill at all times. They would put it in and out of its hole as they needed it. And like other pilgrims, Simon's just in town for Passover. He's coming here as a faithful Jew to offer sacrifice. He's coming a distance. Cyrene is in North Africa. Apparently there's uh, many Jews residing there. If you read the book of Acts, you might pick up on that. And here this man's just trying to sacrifice his Passover lamb. And he encounters this procession. And he's forced into service. The Lord's unable to carry his cross at this point. This would be another evidence of the severity of his scourging. He's probably slowing down the group. We mentioned there were two others with him. But then again, just consider his last few days. His last 24 hours. He hasn't slept in over 24 hours. It's Friday morning. He would have slept last on Wednesday night. His last meal took place on Thursday night. We call it the Last Supper. It became apparent at that meal that his disciples, those closest to him, really knew nothing of any of this that was about to transpire. Even the night before, last night he prayed, and it seems as though he prayed in such a way there was a severity of agony and mental anguish that caused him to, to sweat drips of blood. He was then betrayed and arrested, and his closest companions fled. Peter denied even knowing him. It's been six trials through the course of that arrest, including accusations and abuse and mocking and taunting. He was punched, he was slapped, he was beaten. The scourging he received often killed people with no food or water or sleep. The Lord collapsed, exhausted. There are estimates of how far Jesus traveled in his lifetime. We know that that walking was the poor man's transportation of the time. Some people estimate he traveled 13,000 to 21,000 miles throughout his life. But here he walks his final mile. And as, as a reporter with some investigating, you'd learn that almost all of that mileage was walked in just a small region. Galilee, Judea, Samaria. You would learn testimony after testimony of, of healings and miracles and, and liberation. But the focus of the Bible isn't on distances. The focus of the scriptures is on a God who identifies with man. And the focus of the Bible is on a God who identifies with you. A man who has suffered as you do. Even as we discover this morning, a man who suffered in some ways that we're uncomfortable hearing about. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who were tempted. Can you imagine some of his temptations in this final mile? He's tempted to be anxious. 
Tempt it to fear. Tempt it to hate his persecutors. The scripture read that he was tempted in what he suffered. And in that, he's able to come to your aid in what you suffer because he knows exactly what it's like. He understands our temptations. And if it were not enough for us to say that that God has created us and God knows us, he knows us intimately, it's even more so that, that that God has come down in the flesh and has walked in our shoes and understands our sorrows. Jesus walked miles in our shoes. And he walked that final mile for you. Well, we've reported so far this morning on on the mocking of the king. We've also seen this parade of the king. And I want you to see, lastly, the, the crucifixion of the king. It's the crucifixion of the king in verse 33. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This final destination is somewhat of a haunt. It's almost ghoulish to consider. Remember those vertical cross beams, the patabolum, they would have stood in their spots atop of this hill. They would have cast shadows as though they were tombstones marking this area with probably a, a warm desert air blowing up off the crest of that hill. The Golgotha is the Aramaic word for skull. And people don't exactly know how it got that name. Perhaps it, the, the whole place looked like a skull. Maybe it was just labeled that because of what happened there. It's where the Romans took their victims for crucifixion. It's associated with death. You notice that our Lord is given wine mixed with gall. Mark's gospel writes that it was wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh, maybe more specifically the ingredient and gall, the the flavor of it. Both authors note that Jesus refused it. There's different reasons they believe this, and it depends upon, I guess, our presupposition. Uh, Myrrh served as a mild drug, it was believed. It would have been prescribed for pain. Um, Some believe that Jesus rejected it so he could have his full senses, his complete sense going into this final stretch of his life. Others believe this would be yet an additional act of torment on the part of the soldiers. He refused it because they created a nasty drink and they gave it to him. He, 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 well, gall means bitter. He refused the drink. Later on the cross, he, he does receive a cheap wine. It's given to him in John chapter 19. It was probably given to him by women who were there who followed him and supported him. But we also recognize they would have only been able to do that with the permission of that Roman squad. Whatever the goal of the wine, we know that the crucifixion came next. And in this time, the crosses came in various shapes. A cross could be in the shape of an X. 
uh, a, a capital T or the lowercase t. We're, we're most familiar with the lowercase t. It's the traditional cross. We believe this was the cross that Jesus was crucified on. Uh, later in verse 37, you see that, that they hung a sign above his head. And that's the evidence that people cite for it being that, that lowercase t, there being a, a cross beam above him. We see when our Lord arrived, his clothes were again removed, reopening all of his wounds. And after Simon would have dropped that beam, Jesus would be thrown on his back, his arms outstretched on the beam, and he would have been nailed to it. Tapered iron spikes were discovered in a tomb of a man who was crucified from that time. Uh, They measured five to seven inches long, according to some data, And they would have been driven either into his hands or his wrists, just below the hand. And then with that whole team of soldiers, they would lift him up with the cross, the beam, and put him up on the vertical member. They would have aligned his feet and driven a single nail, morbidly precise. We know that not one bone was broken. And for the next six hours, our Lord would die a slow death. Hanging on the cross made inhalation possible. You could take in a breath, but you couldn't let it out. Not without pulling yourself up or pushing yourself up. Working your hands and feet together was how you exhaled. And death came then through a number of causes, mostly through shock or through asphyxia. You notice the soldiers are indifferent to any of this. In verse 35, they basically gamble for his clothing. In verse 36, they keep watch to prevent any rescue attempts. In verse 37, they hang a sign. Above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The Gospel of John records that Pilate, he wrote this in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The point here is that he wants everyone passing by to get the message. This is what happens to people who claim kingship. A kingship that belongs to Caesar alone. At the cross, Jesus became a curse for us. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Paul would write, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. At the end of that verse, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. A part of Jewish law. The law being that a corpse hung upon a tree is accursed by God. Not as an execution, but as a shaming. And not upon a cross, but upon a tree. And no doubt it it never entered Jewish mind that the man hanging upon the tree would be alive when he was hung. But instead it was a public spectacle of a criminal to show that this man is accursed, that he's condemned, that he is shamed. But even in that law, at the same time, the, the corpse didn't hang indefinitely. They would take him down before sundown, even when Joshua, in the book that bears his name, even when he conquered five Canaanite kings, even then they were taken down at sundown. 
But by no coincidence, the cross of Jesus is connected with Deuteronomy. You see, throughout his entire life, Jesus never came under the curse of the law. He lived a perfect, sinless life. One commentator says it this way, what Paul makes plain is that the curse which Christ became was his people's curse, as the death which he died was their death. You see, our sin, those things that we do that that disobey God's law or disobey God's word, they bring upon us a curse. It's a separation from God. But this curse can be lifted, says the Bible. It can be lifted for each one of us by trusting in Jesus and believing that he bore that curse and that he redeemed me from that curse. Do you believe that this morning? Have you set aside the way of living that bears the mark of the curse? This cross is filled with meaning. The cross means something. I think about history. Many a man has met a tragic ending upon the cross. A gruesome end at the hand of Rome, but not Jesus. You see, this isn't the end, and we're going to see that soon enough. But at least for today, we're going to pause. Your Passover reporting has taken you to a Roman palace. It's taken you to a city packed with people. And it's taken you to a barren hill outside the gate. In our account this morning, you've encountered hostile Jews and grieving Jews. You've encountered Gentiles, non-Jews, who practice great evil. But what you can't know yet standing there, staring up at this shell of a man, is what the end would be. Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ and the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross and we thank Jesus for bearing the cross. We thank you for the wisdom of your plan and we thank you for the power of the cross. How this event resolves so much for each of us as we believe in Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your life as a sacrifice for ours. We worship you and we praise you. We pray in your name. Amen.